I'm Charlotte Leslie and welcome to CMEC's latest podcast. This is the third in our series of podcasts on Turkey, kindly sponsored by Karkin & Yüksel, a leading Turkish law firm in the heart of London. You can find out more about Karkin & Yüksel, their practice areas and the rest of their firm from their website www.karkinyuxel.co.uk and a link to their website will be embedded on the CMEC website with this podcast. Turkey has always been a highly significant player in the Middle East, but it has assumed critical importance to the West since Russia's invasion of Ukraine, which began on February the 24th. Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan is threatening to veto the NATO applications of hitherto neutral Sweden and Finland, accusing both of lending support and shelter to the Kurdish militants he accuses of threatening Turkey's security and integrity. Geographically, of course, Turkey's northern Black Sea coastline faces Ukraine's southern coast. The waters of the Black Sea usually carry vital grain supplies to the Middle East and beyond. Russia also has to be wary of Turkey's control of the critical Dardanelles Straits. Ankara has already prevented Russia's ships accessing the Black Sea from the Mediterranean. So, what next for Turkey in this growing crisis, and what role can Turkey play for the West in the months ahead, possibly even as an eventual peace broker? And what consequences could the war have for Turkey and other countries on the Black Sea? I'm delighted to be joined by Dr. Zia Miral, a senior associate fellow at RUSI. Zia, welcome. Uh, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to have you with us. First, Zia, of course, let's look at the geography. Turkey shares the Black Sea coastline with Ukraine and Russia, amongst others. So how's the war impacted on Turkey, its economy and security? So Turkish economy has been going through turbulence for a few years now. Some of that has to do with its own fiscal policies, the value of the lira, and inflation and rise in living costs, etc. Some of them are domestic reasons, but a lot of it is actually regional and global economic trends. So the last thing Turkey needed in the middle of trying to contain the valuation of the Turkish lira, increasing inflation and strained relations with the United States and with multiple key European kind of investment partners was a tension with, that involves Russia. And the reason for that is Turkish-Russian bilateral trade is really important for Turkey. Turkey does import a lot of energy from Russia, Turkey does sell a lot of products to Russia, Turkish companies invest in Russia, and Russian tourists to Turkey form a major revenue stream. So any tension that involves Russia or any sanction that is being brought on Russia or trade with Russia obviously automatically has a lot of implications for Turkey. And that does put it in a very difficult um, economic but also geopolitical position. You know, how do you walk this kind of tightrope walk between? But at the same time, Turkey has been quite consistent in actually being critical of Russian invasion of Crimea since 2014, from day one actually, Turkey has been quite reactionary to Russia for what it has done, the process that it has begun. It has even banned vessels coming from Crimean ports through Dardanelles and etc. didn't allow them passage. But it had to do it in such a way that it still does not jeopardize relations with Russia, maximizes economic interests and tries to appease everybody in that calculation, which is obviously very difficult to achieve. Absolutely. And, and as we know, different countries' responses to the Russian invasion of Ukraine have differed around the world. And the Middle East's response is, is often very different from, from the West's response. Can you just unpack a little bit more the difficulties that Turkey faces in straddling these two 
friends and allies? Yeah, I mean, it, it, not even just in the Middle East. If you look at NATO itself, like so, Northern Europeans versus Southern Europeans. You know, their threat perceptions of Russia have been fundamentally different. Not just with this invasion, but for a decade now, we've seen continued sense of an increasing threat risk for those in the north. So it's not surprising that Sweden ultimately has traveled in this direction of an application for NATO membership. But if you were France or even Greece or even Spain, you know your priorities were not necessarily Russia. You didn't necessarily see Russia as a direct threat. Maybe a challenge, maybe a complication, but not the same way those in Northern Europe and not the same way the UK has seen it. For Turkey, it's it's something beyond that because of Russian presence in Syria, because of Russian activities in Libya and in a broad geography. And and Turkey had to engage with Russia operationally even to be able to com- you know conduct operations in. Syria or find a way to negotiate with Bashar al-Assad's regime, which it couldn't do directly, while at the same time buying energy from Russia while, you know, having trade. And if you remember a while ago, Turkey shot down a Russian jet, which has entered into Turkish airspace. And when Russia brought sanctions against Turkey after that, it was very difficult um, for Erdogan government to de-escalate that. And it costs a lot of money, in including a lot of Turkish exports that perish in agriculture and etc. Yet at the same time, Turkey has been trying to do its best for the last two years particularly to normalize some of the tensions it had with the United States, with some of the European countries, because it has been on an unsustainable kind of very verbal and public confrontation with some of the key European and Western powers. And, and again, some of them are understandable issues of security vis-a-vis the Kurdish militant groups. That's a legitimate topic to discuss. Some of them are personality-driven or domestic politics-driven or a deep mistrust that has been deepening particularly between the United States and Turkey. But if you look at the recent rapprochement Turkey is pursuing with Israel, with UAE, with Armenia, even towards the United States, even towards other European nations, there's been a lot of goodwill building up again that maybe those days are behind us. And then now we have a war in Ukraine. So that puts Ankara into a very difficult position. It's got genuine national interests to protect, whether it is economy or energy, but it's got a really difficult geopolitical tightrope walk to walk. It's very easy for us to pass a judgment either way. But at the same time, it's also not helped by its own very domestic polemical style of doing diplomacy, which almost always backfires on Erdogan, even when what he's saying is quite legitimate. Mm. Actually, so on that, this this speaks to what you've just said, on Finland and Sweden, um, both these European countries now face being vetoed by President Erdogan for their membership of NATO. How much of Turkey's veto is because of genuine concern over these countries' alleged support and shelter for Kurdish militants, and how much of it is other geopolitical considerations? Um, It is tricky. So I don't think domestic politics plays a big part in this at all. So I don't think any Turkish voter would have supported or not supported Erdogan if he didn't make an issue out of Finland and Sweden coming into NATO. That's really not an issue for the Turkish voters as much as economies and and the issues that they experience with. There is a legitimate question vis-a-vis the Swedish arms embargo that has been brought on Turkey a few years ago, Swedish direct relations with the YPG group or you know in, in Syria, which is an offshoot of PKK, which is listed by the UK, by Europe, by NATO as a terror organization. But also I think a lot of it boiled down to ongoing, very personal diplomatic tensions 
uh, between Swedish officials and Turkish officials. There have been Twitter spats, there have been public statements which both parties had to clarify. So this is less about actually than than actually it is about Turkish-Swedish relations. That's one side of it. The other aspect of it is I think there's a sense in Ankara that whenever um, there is an opportunity for Turkey to be heard or to have an incentive to negotiate to achieve something, it's being pushed aside and it's not really engaged, you know, these are not real issues, you just go with it. And they often see the example of when Greece left the military wing of NATO and then came back, decided to come back, Turkey put no reservations whatsoever and Greece came back in. And so from their perspective, well, look, we didn't make an issue, but then Greece is always put, you know, putting a pressure on us. Even now, Greece is lobbying for US not to give F-16s to Turkey, etc. France, again, similarly, left and then came back. And if you look at, for example, how Greece you know, vetoed the NATO membership of Macedonia on the basis of the country's name for almost a decade and eventually accepted that. So from Ankara's perspective, look, you know, new members coming in to the alliance has always caused concerns among other members, debates and interests. It is actually not normal at all, not not normal, not abnormal, that actually a member state says, well, hold on a second, I have a question, I have a reservation, and here are my interests. What is really surprising to me is that if the Swedish government did not see this coming, and actually before they made their application public, they didn't think about NATO member states and because all of them needs to approve this application because it is legitimately correct because you're entering into a military alliance with them also. So Sweden is literally also entering an alliance with Turkey. So if there is a question such as a state thinks you are directly um, supporting a militant organization they've been fighting for 40 years and you're blockading arms you know, sales from your companies to Turkey, this has to be addressed. This is a very nitty-gritty security defense question. Maybe this could have been prevented quietly, but clearly it didn't go that way. But I mean, I guess um, on the other side, although member states, members joining NATO always causes issues amongst other existing member states, I guess the context in, the, in, in this case is slightly unusual. Perhaps we should all have been slightly more aware of, of Putin's amassing troops outside Ukraine, and perhaps we should all have been less surprised that this actually happened. But when it did, it happened quite quickly. Is that a factor in what you're saying is a slight, if well, it's not I mean, diplomatic failure, suboptimal diplomacy yeah. on this? I mean, look, so the invasion of Ukraine started in 2014, so not in 2022, right? Absolutely. So this has been coming for a while. In fact, Britain has been training Ukrainian military since, what, 2015. I mean, all of the assessment at governmental levels have shown a clear kind of trajectory for a while, not just the recent build-up and the kind of very public confusion over is this happening, is this not happening. I mean, most people thought this was going to happen. The question was always the scope of it, right? What is going to be the next wave of this? And would the United States come back in to support NATO? And, or how would the wider NATO respond? Because Ukraine is not a NATO state. And to me, the ambiguities were about that, not so much so about what Russians were going to do. So that's why, myself included, a lot of us have been um, really critical of voices that keep evoking Turkish NATO membership. You know, should Turkey be kicked out of NATO as, as soon as there's a friction or a strategic divergence as a horribly lack of strategic understanding of NATO itself, because NATO itself has been adopting really fast since 2014. We knew the um, threat and questions over Russia are a real threat 
And a lot of NATO states have been trying to find a solution to all these contentions that could possibly weaken us. Black Sea, for example, you know, for the last three, four years, there has been a, 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 a genuine concern about Black Sea and focus on Black Sea, even for U.S. Navy to increase its presence in, in the area, etc. So, so these things have been coming for a while. And But the, the strategic divergences within NATO also relates to Turkey. I mean, those countries that are much more aware of the Russian challenge for themselves have always been much more calmer on managing their differences with Turkey and trying to find solutions because they, have, they are fully aware that unless you have Turkey within the alliance find a way to contain all these risks and possibilities, you would be in a much weaker position than you would be if Turkey was actually outside of the alliance and somehow closer to Russia. So if you're concerned about Black Sea, if you're concerned about the Asian, if you're concerned about Crimea, Western Balkans or the Baltics, an alliance without Turkey would be horribly weak in deterrent perspectives, but even as we've seen in what happens now. So that's why there is a diplomatic failure here on part of particularly our Swedish fans not to see this coming. But there's also, you might I think be legitimate to say, there's thus far Erdogan can go with this. I mean, initially there would be sympathy and understanding of, look, this is a right moment for you to negotiate with Sweden, with Finland about these issues and find a solution. But if you drag this on a bit longer, you also start losing the diplomatic capital that you have gathered with your positive views towards Ukraine, provision of Ukraine with Turkish drones, which have played a key part, and even a lot of normalization efforts that they've been doing. So all of us assume that somehow, soon, there will be some sort of an understanding and agreement, and Turkey will not actually stop um, Swedish and Finnish membership into NATO. In fact, a stronger NATO is for the benefit of Turkey. A weaker Russia is for the benefit of Turkey, not the other way around. Turkey is very vulnerable to Russian aggressions, Russian posturing, Russian blackmailing. That's why for all of his strong assertions on anybody, President Erdogan has hardly ever said anything um, about NATO that is negative. While President Macron was out, you know, declaring NATO to be brain dead and even before key meetings shaking the whole um, organization up and down publicly, the Erdogan was always really calm in affirming why NATO matters for Turkey. I mean, the simple narrative is, is that Vladimir Putin has given NATO identity and purpose and cohesion that it's been unable to find within itself for many years. In simple terms, do you think that's the case? Do you think this has uh, strengthened NATO's resolve and identity? I think in the short run, for sure. I mean, organisationally, NATO itself, I think since 2014, has been adapting, adjusting, learning a lot. I mean, it wasn't surprising that unlike the, the first wave of invasion in 2014 with little green man, Russian narratives of blurring it and, then, and a de facto invasion that happened. This time around, nobody let that happen. Lessons have been learned. NATO has been adopting. NATO alliance as a military side of it has been adopting and responding to these. At the strategic and political level, the divergences within NATO in the short period, in the near future, definitely, I think there's a lot more coherence, right? Uh, President Macron doesn't talk about NATO being branded or obsolete, I'm um, needing to change. But yes, the German signals on adjustment and adapting, I don't think it's that actually clear whether beyond a year or beyond two years this will sustain. I mean, you already see people publicly asking Ukrainians to give up on their land to end the war because they're almost fed up. It's three months, chop chop, you should end this war and, and give them whatever they want. So I 
I think there is going to be more contention and there's still definitely a lot of discontent in particular parts of the alliance towards any harsher sanctions on Russia. Ironically, that's not necessarily Turkey. That's more a continental European and particularly southern European criticism towards what's happening. So in the long run, I do think that while definitely with new members in the alliance, the alliance is going to be stronger. A lot of lessons have been learned militarily, strategically, politically, even the use of national intelligence in public was an amazing new um, experience for all of us to witness. But I think the strategic divergences between the south of NATO and the north of NATO and northwest of NATO is going to be there forever. And particularly for the United States with their primary concern over, or concerns over China. So that would be actually interesting to see what the alliance would go through if there's a crisis in Far East and whether the US will actually expect NATO to be part of its um, response to it. I'm Charlotte Leslie. I'm talking to Dr. Zia Morau, a senior associate fellow at RUSI, as part of the third in our series of podcasts on Turkey, proudly sponsored by Karkin and Yuxel, a Turkish law firm at the heart of London. Can I ask you possibly a difficult question? I'm not sure you'll be able to answer it. Where is the best kebab shop in London? <laughs> that, that is a difficult one. That's all our listeners want to hear. <laughs> exactly. And you do need to answer that before the podcast <laughs> yeah, well, is done. No, that's impossible. What would Turkey's view of the UK and the West's response to Russia's invasion of Ukraine? So British-Turkish relations have been on a positive trajectory for more than a decade now, actually. You know, subsequent British governments have been quite consistent about their messaging on we want Turkey in NATO, we want Turkey in EU, we want to focus on trade, and if there is a crisis or divergence, we'd rather do it behind closed doors and quietly. So you've seen that all the way from Tony Blair pretty much to this day, right? So that has been very consistent with Labour and Conservative governments. And that rapport built between those two countries, you feel it. I mean, even if there's a contention, there's, there's an issue that you might think to be a crisis, people are able to work through it. If you remember, Prime Minister Boris Johnson wrote an awful poem about President Erdogan right before he came back to main politics and became a foreign minister. And I think his first trip was to Turkey on his first foreign visit. And actually the welcome was okay. There were smiles and awkward silences, but it wasn't made an issue versus if that was somebody else, it could have been mm. a much bigger diplomatic crisis. So I think that goes to show. And the fact that UK has been rightfully and honorably quite assertive and straightforward on Ukraine hasn't gone amiss by Turks and by others. UK government really did hold the bull with its horns on this and it's something to be proud of. And I think that clarity was read both as, well, everybody knows UK is always much more concerned about Russian activities in Northern Europe and the Balkans and the Baltics. Some of that has, has been read as UK's attempt to again remind or establish its role within continental Europe as a key security partner even beyond Brexit. And that's an important signal for Turkey as well too because obviously now Turkey and UK are two outliers of European Union. One has been you know, trying to get in and then it knows it's never going to happen. The other one has left. So they both have similar questions about customs union and trade and security. And they both have their own um, different uh, perspectives and they both will love to partake in some of these kind of European questions. So I think that is only a welcome. So that's why UK and Turkey sees a lot of regional developments, even in the Middle East, in very similar terms. 
So the strategic convergence is quite a lot. With United States, and I think the number one kind of heartfelt concern with Erdogan government at the moment is President Biden and his administration has put a cold shoulder, like a thick wall between DC and Ankara, unlike the Trump era where they had ongoing direct access to President Trump and very personalized diplomacy. Now with Biden administration, Turkish-American relations are back to a very structural, process-driven um, approach with really no sign of any affinity or a deal beyond actually state-to-state -state interactions. We've, we've mentioned one personality already, that the poet, our Prime Minister Boris Johnson. To what extent is the personality of Erdogan as a person in an era where a lot of people are talking about um, a globe, the global resurgence of the strong man leading. What role does his personality as a person, his background, play in the diplomacy of this situation? Yeah, I mean, you could stand back from it and reflect what does personality play in any diplomatic effort, right? So, you know, diplomacy in the end of the day is the art of influence when a state wants to influence another state. Um, to go by with their own interests and their own requests and we deploy the, the charm or the threat or incentives or any other mechanism to achieve that. So I think there is an element of personality that will always matter in diplomacy no matter who is there. Is it a strong man or not a strong man? Or strong woman, it really does not matter. Diplomacy, in the end of the day, it's always going to boil down to a lot of personal relationships. Yes, national calculations kicking, yes, interests kicking, but without that personal rapport, it's very difficult to advance them. However, having said all of that, I think traditionally, Turkish foreign policy still had seen Turkish foreign ministry playing a big part in its formulation, in its execution. But under the current presidential system in Turkey, a lot more of that executive power, including deciding on foreign policy or even some of its execution, is basically to the Turkish presidency. So that kind of creates a distance with the traditional understanding of the role of Turkish foreign ministry. But it's not just Erdogan. So when it comes to particular issues like Syria or the question of Kurdish militants, Turkish defense ministry, Turkish national intelligence, national security council and secretariat does play a big part in forming that. And, and also, even though it's a strong man government, in other words, there's one individual holding a substantial amount of executive power, he still has people around him, interests around him, he's got his voters to think about, and myriad of factors that shape any politician in its engagement with anybody. So Turkey's a lot more complex than merely just one man sitting on a chair and deciding what he wants to do. But even if he decided something, how do you execute that policy, right? And how do you move the other in diplomatic terms? That again goes down to the universal kind of principles of diplomacy, negotiation, influence, personal charm. And we have tried that with Donald Trump. I mean, Theresa May, if you remember, even President Macron has got to great extent to charm him with shows, with, you know, with mm. pageantry, and it didn't play any part whatsoever so in getting anything. Is, politics is only ever all about the people, whether that's, you know, citizens of a nation or whether it's the leaders of a nation, in Indeed. a sense. Indeed. It wasn't shut. I was going to ask you a question. I can't remember what it was. Sorry, don't worry, don't worry. You said, oh, the politics is only personal. Oh, yeah. So, what one, one noted feature, I guess, of Erdogan is that whilst Turkey is a secular state, the AK party is Islamist. You've written on the role of religion in conflict. I think it, your book in 2018, which we'd be grateful if you could give a plug to. Of course, by um, right in time for Christmas, definitely. Yeah. Um, 
With how do you see the current conflict putting that lens over things? Does religion play any role at all in this, or yeah. is it just a sideshow? You can't really understand Turkey or Middle East or Africa or Asia or even Latin America without understand, or e even United States, without understanding the role of religion in public space, right? How it shapes individuals, public sensitivities of voting patterns, and etc. So I think in the UK, in Northern Europe, we are the anomaly of thinking. This is a secular world and here are religious people out there who kind of are so alien to us. So I'm not surprised at all that when we look at Turkey or countries like Turkey, we see Islam as um, a dominant theme or Islamism as a language to capture that. Depending on how you use that word, I mean, I would describe AKP's ideology or Erdogan's ideology as religious nationalism. So in other words, Islamism assumes uh, or pursues an establishment of an ummah or an Islamic state in alliance with others. But Erdogan's vision and his party's vision, which is quite inconsistent half of the time, has been mostly about a Turkish presence and influence um, that is conservative in religious terms, that reaches out to particular groups within the Islamic world, but really doesn't really pursue a Sharia-based state structure, a Sharia-based economy, and a, and a kind of global network of establishing an ummah. So it's quite a Turkish nationalist affair. An important religious. It is important, because nobody in the Arab world even Muslim Brotherhood have ever seen Erdogan as an Islamist. They've seen him as somebody who understands and supports and somebody has obviously religious sensitivities, as a religious conservative himself, but they've never really seen him as an, an, an Muslim Brotherhood kind of type of Islamist leader, even though he wanted to host and, and use that and influence that, etc. So Turkey's unique history, and it's about to reach its 100th anniversary as the Republic, has been an interesting contention of multiple visions of a republic that it has been trying to establish. You know, one vision of the republic has been what has been symbolized by Ataturk and, and different kind of moments in Turkish history that still had Islam as an important aspect of identity, but not necessarily a religious expression of it, but still based upon Turkish national vision, an archetype Turk that needs to be developed. And Erdogan is pretty much a Kemalist in his understanding of the place of education, public space, strong state, strong leader, and a strong nationalist vision. Um, it's just the role the of religion. Can you explain to some of our listeners who may not know? Yeah, it's the language, maybe, maybe shorthand that we use to capture Mustafa's vision of a nation state that has been set up after the collapse of the Ottoman Empire that is focused on a strong state that dictates pretty much and covers all aspects of life pushes modernization, reform, and develops a homogenized nation out of a multi-ethnic empire that has failed. And in that process is a strong military, a strong security apparatus, and a strong political rule that doesn't necessarily do good with criticism or an open democracy, or even secularism as we understand. In fact, the earlier vision of secularism in Turkey is not what we mean in the United Kingdom as secularism, mm -hmm. i.e. a state keeping neutral distance from all religions and, and all members of religions being free, but you being a British citizen is what mattered. But in Turkey, if you, you know, had another religion, if you're a Jew or an Armenian or a Greek, or Greek Orthodox or a Christian, etc., you were not necessarily seen as a Turk. So, and so therefore your status is, is, was a different one. So secularism means a very particular relationship with religion, which doesn't really translate to UK. So I think in many ways what Erdogan is doing is repeating the same political culture and framework, but with a much more Anatolian religious conservative 
grounding that has a huge constituency in Turkey. I, I've never seen any actual study that has suggested that under Erdogan, Turkey has actually become more religious or headscarves have increased. I don't think there's any change at all. But what you do see is different cohorts of society, which previously you didn't see, having much more important role economically, socially, culturally. But there's definitely questions over whether increasing restrictions brought by Erdogan on, say, symbolic things like consumption of alcohol and, and other things are actually attempts and increasing the numbers of students that go to religious schools is actually an attempt by him to, again, to deny Turks who define themselves as secular Turks a cultural space, which is a worrying trend as well. Turning back to big personalities, President Trump, in a sense, changed a lot of the landscape of the region by pushing for the Abraham Accords. Earlier this month, being, being May, the Turkish foreign minister visited Israel. What is the prognosis for that relationship? Is there any thought that Turkey could reach more rapprochement with Israel and follow the, the kind of Abraham Accords pattern? Yeah, um, it's been interesting. I think Çavuşoğlu, the Turkish foreign minister, was the first senior Turkish official that went to Israel in a decade. And Israel-Turkish relations have been really fascinating to observe. I mean, the trade between two countries have been flourishing. The number of particularly Israeli tourists to Turkey goes up really high and down depending on political kind of tensions. And obviously the organic links, right? So there is a there has been a substantial community of Turkish Jews and even those who moved to Israel, and there's a lot of kind of organic heartfelt links. But for Erdogan's government and his constituency, obviously there's always going to be a contention. So if it comes to purely geopolitical and economic terms, they are actually really keen to work with Israel on energy, on handling all these tensions with Eastern Med, because they realize, I mean, if you don't really work with Israel, it's got knock-on effect and so many other areas and issues. Egypt isn't one of those, right? And your relations with the United States is another one of those vis-a-vis -vis US Congress and etc. So from a pure geopolitical perspective, and they have every reason to work, and, and Israeli diplomacy has always done a really good job in managing those complex relationships without making much fuzz out of it, like, you know, working with Egypt, but not really making it too public, or even working with Saudi Arabia, but not really making it too public. But I think for Israeli government, Turkey's hosting and some of the Muslim Brotherhood networks, for the, particularly since 2014-15, pretty much the second half of the kind of Arab Spring era, that has been a very painful point for them, and which they keep raising, and I think even in this visit, Israeli officials raised that with Chavosholo, look, you know, as long as this is there, this is very difficult. But for Ankara too, whenever they see any incident like we've seen even yesterday with the Jerusalem Day or any clampdown on Palestinians or any image that emerges or any more tension over that is going to lead their constituency and, and Erdogan to make very critical statements of Israel. So the question is whether within those unresolved issues, both states would be able to find a quieter room to focus on very transactional particulars. I think they both have a track record of being able to do that. And, and so it does genuinely seem like the Turkish foreign policies reached the UAE, even to Egypt. And Turkish you know, economy minister went to Egypt, which is much more difficult than actually a Turkish foreign minister going to Israel. I think that does show a genuine turn in Ankara of closing that era of later part of Arab Spring contentions with Egypt, with Israel, with UAE, 
with Saudi Arabia, even Erdogan shaking the hands of Mohammed bin Salman, the Saudi crown prince, after everything that has happened, it goes to show, I mean, they are able to take that cold, rational turn when the economy and geopolitics demand it. So I don't think it's more about Abraham Accords and the successes of Jared Kushner, but it is more about Turkey's own calculation of where the region is and the closure of that Arab Spring type of policy and now the need for Turkey to ease economic tensions and focus on energy. You're presenting a picture of a Turkey that is often very misunderstood and is actually very self-interested, and that's not a criticism, but very much looks at itself as a nation, as a, as a, as a former you know, Ottoman Empire, as, a, as an entity in itself. What would you say are the most common misconceptions in the West and beyond about Turkey? I mean, I think number one thing is our obsession with Erdogan, the figure of him, right? So it's often larger than life. But by all means, he's got more power than ever before. And by all means, he loves getting into polemic tensions and rhetorical towards the West. But it's a very complex country. And not everything he says is wrong. And just not everything he raises as a grievance is actually wrong. In fact, on the question of, for example, arming of the same militants which Turkey has been fighting for 40 years, Britain would have reacted really aggressively if somebody was arming IRA, or Israel would have reacted really aggressively if somebody was arming Hamas or Hezbollah to fight another war. So there are legitimate grievances too, and we have to find a way to work with them. And I think that always leads to caricatures over Turkey as some sort of irrational, ideology-driven, that is all, almost always never about the issue. There's always a domestic political calculation. You know, he's doing this because blah, blah, blah. But actually, he really doesn't half of the time. These are real issues, and we need to find solutions. And, and the more you approach it that way, the less you will actually have any meaningful outcomes. And I think Britain actually has done a really good job in relating to Turkey, finding ways to solve issues and, and pursuing diplomacy, and because it has taken a long-term understanding beyond any individual in office, and it has spent a lot of time trying to listen to what has happened and what is happening and what can be done. But I think Turks will almost always react rather emotionally if they feel like their genuine grievance is not being heard and it's being relativized. One of the things that really, I guess, changed or influenced the West's perception of Turkey was Turkey's decision to purchase Russia's S-400 ground-to-air missile system, specifically designed to down US planes. What impact has that decision had on the ongoing relationship and can and will it be healed? I mean, that was the Trojan horse moment, not first for NATO or for us, but for Turkey itself. I mean, because we quickly turned the S-400 issue an issue about US-Turkey relations and whether US will allow Turkey to buy F-35 jets rather than actually debating very publicly and strongly that, you know, hold on, Turkey, actually, first and foremost, this is a national security threat to you. You know, those missiles, their radar systems will first and foremost collect data about you. And the only jet that you shut down has been a Russian jet entering Turkey. I can just about see what led them to calculate that purchasing of such a missile system might have military use and might give some sort of balancing act with Russia, given their need to work with Russia in, in Syria and their tension at that time with US. I think they completely miscalculated of what a major strategic mistake this is and what a damage this will cause. Now, they didn't get the actual package of S-400s. They, you know, they you get a lower down version of it in the export shelf. And again, they're not necessarily using it and I, I don't think it will ever be activated and used and etc. So it's all about containment. And I think Turks did feel the loss of F-35s 
as a major blow because that is a capability that is very difficult. F-35s being the US jets. Fifth generation um, jets, which at the moment Turkey has older F-16s and now they're waiting for the US Congress to approve their modernization. And now Greece is buying F-35s and other countries in the region are. Those jets are you know, phenomenally effective for the wars ahead. So that's why I think Turks have felt something um, as a cost which they didn't necessarily calculate. It has also caused a lot of mistrust across the alliance because of the broader context of Russian ambitions and um, Russian assertions. And I think they really miscalculated that. But there's always a solution, right? We had that with Cyprus and Greece with their S300s purchases. You know, you could pack them away and keep them somewhere and deal with it, contain it, grant it. Ankara genuinely doesn't signal anymore it will buy more missiles or it will produce, you know, purchase more Russian kits. Legally, they didn't do anything wrong. NATO doesn't stop you from purchasing any military assets from elsewhere outside of NATO, but obviously strategically and operationally, it was a major mistake. One other element that could be both a huge item of leverage but also of risk for Turkey is its control of the Dardanelles and access to the Black Sea from the Mediterranean. That's obviously crucial in, in so many ways. How, how much of a risk is that to further confrontation with Russia and what potential does it have for some kind of leverage in broking, brokering some kind of a deal? Yeah, I mean, if you've seen how Ankara was really careful in naming the events of the last few months as a war or not and taking a decision on whether it will allow Russian naval vessels to go through because there is a treaty that regulates access of the, the, the straits, particularly for Black Sea nations. But even their decision to limit some of Russian naval vessels that are not based in the Black Sea, but were somewhere else to come back there, was, was a really important signal. So Turkey can never really fully stop Russian naval vessels unless it can state that this is a threat to itself and is protecting its nation. But even what they've done, you know, sent a very important message. And if you look at what um, Putin has said and Russian officials have said, they've also been very cautious towards Turkey in their statements, right? Because they do know that if Turkey decides to go full with the alliance in reaction to Russia, which at this moment actually it, it very well can, a lot of its concerns about Russia might have been weakened, then it will have a huge impact on Russia. Uh, but that is a big asset for NATO too. And when you have such a strategic asset as an alliance, there is a time to evoke it, there is a time to signal it, there is a time to leave it in ambiguous terms, to give yourself a bigger diplomatic kind of possibility for the future. And I think within the alliance, that's why anybody who is genuinely concerned about Russia, they're never going to talk about kicking Turkey out of NATO. It's more the commentariat that could generously offer that. But also NATO has more than $10 billion worth of investments within Turkey. Those are bases, those are extremely advanced radar systems. Those are, you know, military personnel. You know, NATO has one of its, you know, land command. The commander of NATO land forces is based in Izmir, my hometown. So there are a lot of structural reasons why actually NATO presence in Turkey matters for NATO, militarily, operationally, and strategically. So because of geography, you will always have Turkey as an important uh, piece of the jigsaw and trying to balance some of these mega tensions for the alliance. Finally, to wrap this up, we've we've managed to discuss this this the Russia Ukraine Middle East North Africa US without touching on perhaps you know a very most significant global player outside this China. Very broadly speaking, 
What's Turkey's policy towards China? What's the bilateral relationships between those two countries? And how does that affect the rest of the region? It is another difficult one for Erdogan. In fact, he was one of the first leaders in Middle East and Europe to publicly stand up against the treatment of Uyghur Turks in Xinjiang province. He was literally one of the few um, statesmen at that time to say, you know, what China is doing to Uyghur Turks is unacceptable, it's putting them in work camps and etc. And he even visited Xinjiang province on his um, tour to China, which was actually amazing that Chinese state um, allowed them, even though it was very well choreographed and he didn't see much, etc. But symbolically, it was very bold on his part to request that. But then that era has died with Turkish economy and also Chinese, you know, kind of Belt Road initiative with all these investments coming to the region and Turkey realizing that actually in a multipolar world, when you have tensions with the sovereign power, U.S., and you have China on the other hand, which doesn't really ask too many bad questions. It doesn't really preach you about democracy and human rights and pressure you and etc. But wants to work with you and clearly Chinese interest in the Middle East has increased. We've seen it in the Gulf region. And also don't forget Turkish outreach in Africa, Turkish investments in Horn of Africa and as well as across Sub-Saharan Africa have brought them much more closer to understanding Chinese ambitions in those regions. And ultimately that, you know, here's another power for Turkey to engage with might compensate in the future with some of the economic losses Turkey is suffering from its relations with Europe. So then that started overriding his initial comments on Uyghur Turks. These days he doesn't talk much about what's happened in, in Xinjiang province. So Turkey's extended much more influence in East Africa and obviously that's where China's coming from. So that has affected the Chinese-Turkish relationships through trade? I think it has overlapped their awareness of each other more than anything, right? So Turkey has opened more than 20 embassies in Africa for the last 15-20 years, whereas we've been shutting them down as Britain and as other countries, right? In, in Somalia, for example, the biggest military base is the Turkish one. So their presence across Horn of Africa and, and all of trade, pushing of trade across Africa has been a very intentional policy for not just Erdogan but you know the current kind of presidential government but even before that they've been focusing on that for more than a decade that has genuinely brought them much closer to awareness of each other as another country that needs to be managed and engaged that clearly has similar strategic areas in mind clearly have economic investments in mind and also Turkey does want more um, FDI more foreign direct investment and if US is failing Europe is failing well, there isn't really anybody else except um, China to do that. What are the diplomatic lessons that the UK and the West can learn from the success of China in exerting such influence over the rest of the world, which we might be able to implement given our you know, great difference in values and what we're prepared to do? Events in Africa, Middle East and Central Asia, by all means, there's a lot of economic leverage that they can utilize. I mean, they built the African Union. as a bu The building of it, I think, was a gift from China. Um, and, and they do have all those relationships. But to what extent all the states in between in that geography are actually oblivious to their own national interests and are not using China for what they want to get? And actually, they won't go with what, what hurts them in another portfolio. So I'm a bit skeptical about the successes of some of these Chinese activities and, and, and the long-term scope of them. But I think at the same time, what we need to appreciate and be aware is the long-term investment and trajectory of 
you know, advancement of Chinese military presence in the, the South China Sea or even a purchase of some of the critical facilities, even in Europe, attempts to buy some of those, which clearly has military potential or use and investment into trades and sectors and even universities and research. So it's more of those things that actually... And thankfully, we're waking up to realize these are not just random investments and random engagements. So for, there is not much to learn vis-a-vis from the Turkish engagement about that. But I think the lesson there for us, again, is if in the long run, particularly for United States or for Europe, if China is going to be the biggest kind of strategic question, how we engage with other sovereign nations, what is, what is our leverage, what is our investment, what is our long-term focus on those regions, I think that's what we need to focus on. But our politics are a lot, short, a lot more short-term um, than the Chinese ones. And I don't believe also in the myth that China thinks in thousand years terms. Nobody does. You know, anybody who holds a public office thinks in two, three, five years or six months or that day to save their own neck and to save their own interests. So I, I don't buy into this kind of supranational, supranatural myth that we ascribe to China. But at the same time, longevity of their officials and powers mean that they're able to think 10, 20 years that maybe we don't. Maybe that's the biggest lesson, that somehow we need to internalize a much more long-term strategic culture than just short-term individual political theatre as diplomacy. Thank you. I'm Charlotte Leslie. I've been speaking to Dr. Zia Moral, Senior Associate Fellow of RUSI, as the third in our series of podcasts on Turkey, proudly sponsored by law firm Karkin & Yuxal, a Turkish firm based in the heart of London. Zia, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking to you. Thank you very much, much indeed. Pleasure. Thank you.